0: When I was researching the actual myth itself, I did discover that Pandora's box was never a box at all, but it was a vase. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, I I was completely fascinated by this. And I thought, oh, this is quite helpful considering everything (laughs) I've just explained. Um, But it turns out "box" was a mistranslation and that was courtesy of the 16th century philosopher Erasmus. He translated Hesiod's tale of Pandora into Latin and the word pithos, which means a large storage jar of vase, it was translated into the Latin word, and forgive if I mispronounce this, um, but "pixis," And that word, you guessed it, it, it means box. So the, that as such, the term Pandora's box. It's endured ever since. But as I said, it was a vase, not a box.
1: Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to this week's episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. One of our favorite facets of storytelling is the retelling of mythology. Some would argue that mythology influences all aspects of storytelling, and I can certainly understand that. Today's guest has a pretty compelling book that might convince you that that is the case. We're so excited to talk with Susan Stokes Chapman all the way from Wales about her debut novel, Pandora. I am Ron Block.
2: And I'm Meg Walker. Susan is a writer based in North Wales. She grew up in the Georgian city of Litchfield before spending four years in the town of Aberystwyth and graduating with a BA in education and English literature and an MA in creative writing. Her debut novel, Pandora, was published in the UK in January of 2022 and became an instant number one bestseller. The novel was previously shortlisted for the 2020 Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize and long listed for the Bath Novel Award. Susan, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's so great to have you here.
0: Oh, Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Yes, we have a lot to talk about. So let's <laughs> just dive right in. <laughs> We're so okay. thrilled to hear about this book. Can you give our listeners an idea of what the book is about? But also what we also like to find out is what the book is really about.
0: Hmm. Okay, well, I'll try my best. So I think I need to start off straight away and say that I am not a classicist. So this novel is not a retelling Of the Greek myth Pandora's box it is more a loose reinterpretation so the novel is set in Georgian London in 1799 on the cusp of a new century going into the Regency period it is the story of Dora Blake who is a strong and very stubborn and Mm -hmm. independent lady who has aspirations to be a renowned jewellery designer. She lives with her uncle in the kind of dilapidated antiquary shop that used to belong to her parents and has since gone to rack and ruin after their deaths many years ago in an archaeological dig gone very wrong. Um, So she's quite isolated. She doesn't get on with her uncle at all. And the novel opens basically with the delivery of a very mysterious shipment, which her uncle is very, very suspicious around. And this kind of attitude of her uncle, who's always a, a bit of a dodgy character anyway, she is very intrigued by this behaviour. He he hides the shipment away in the basement and she decides to break in and finds there a very mysterious, very beautiful ancient Grecian vase. She thinks she's going to use uh, the designs on it to inspire her jewellery designs, but she also wants to know a little bit more about its origins, so that's when she missed the help of um, scholar Edward Lawrence, and together they basically find out all sorts of mysterious things.
1: Yeah, thank you for the clarification. I didn't mean to make everybody think it was a retelling because it's it's, it's oh, no. so influenced by it and it's so beautifully yes. written and um, you, there's just influence of it throughout the story too. So There is, yes. Um, I mean,
0: I was just going to say, I mean, I, I don't ignore the Greek myth by any means. The Greek myth no. is a very key feature throughout the whole of the novel. Yes. Uh, so it's definitely very, very relevant It's just that this is not the Pandora of myth. It is the Pandora of the Regency.
1: Exactly.
2: Ah. Well, one of the things we love to ask is where the original spark of your
0: idea originated. So can you share with us? Sure. Well, I have to admit, the the idea of Dora herself and Hermes the magpie, they kind of just popped into my head just one day after just kind of thinking about a new novel idea they just kind of appeared fully formed but the idea of pandora's box kind of pretty much popped up alongside it i was very very intrigued with the idea it's a myth that we all know in some form or another even if we're not classicists ourselves and many of us aren't but we're all familiar with the story um and i had to basically try and figure out okay these Two things, the, these two characters and this concept are very, very interesting. How can I actually link them? So, I kind of have to backtrack a little bit here because one of the questions I am often asked is why George and London? You know, why transport the myth into the 18th century when I could as easily have set the novel in ancient Greece, classicist or not? So, aside from the fact that I'm not as established a classicist and therefore woefully ill equipped to write such a novel, I was head over heels for the Georgians and particularly the Regency period. So the 1995 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, I think that's what began my love affair with the era. That's the one with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ealy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had nothing to do with a wet shirt. I'm going to put that caveat out there right now. Um, to me, as a child of of nine, ten years old, it was the romance of it. It was the elegance. It was the simplicity. So bear in mind at that age, I was not yet familiar with the seedy side of Georgian London. But this is the thing that drew me in to begin with. And I think that initial impression came from my admiration of the fashions of the time, basically. So this is where we start getting into the kind of Greek link here, basically. So the events of Pandora they play out over the first few months of 1799. The formal Regency era was from 1811 to 1820, but the period from 1795 to 1837 is also regarded as the Regency era. So Pandora, it's set on the cusp of it. With women's fashions, they'd already changed from the full skirts and corsets to the kind of more sedate and graceful designs known as the empire style. These were high-waisted gowns, dresses, (laughs) which gathered under the breasts and at the neck. Basically they were fashions which were remarkably similar to the clothing worn in ancient Greece and even the male uh, fashions they were quite tightly packed especially around the legs and the idea there was to kind of give the impression of the very handsome very muscled greek gods of the of the statues that you would have seen in you know italy greece around that time um so the fashions were very much focused on the Grecian styling. Uh, Of course, jewellery, which is a massive theme in the novel as well, that tended to kind of draw on Greek imagery as well. So you have these beautiful sparkling jewels which have a lot of natural kind of themed patterns, so leaves, flowers, all that sort of thing. Cameos are a massive popular style then as well. So in terms of imagery there, for the actual Georgian man or woman, that kind of theme... Throughout, and I'm sorry, I'm going to ramble on a bit more because there's a lot more to it than this. Yeah, no, I love it. Please do. I feel like okay. you're answering all of our questions <laughs> well, in one question. It's great. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I have, love it. I have to kind of r- r- wind it out a bit further, <laughs> shall not we? But well, the Georgian era it was characterised by its classical architecture. So much of it was inspired by ancient Greece in one form or another. Um, The dominant style of the 18th century buildings, they evolved from the Palladian Revival. So that's a European architectural style, which was inspired by the designs of the ancient world, basically. And that kind of style became known as Palladianism, which is a style that continued to develop until the end of the 18th century and even into the early 19th. So if we kind of consider anybody who has been to London or Bath or just wants to Google them, for those who haven't, many of their 18th century buildings have these sort of elements of the ancient world. So you have a lot of doorways which are flanked by um, kind of these massive, beautifully sculpted columns. So the kind of ionic, you know, Doric, Corinthian sort of style. So these are the ones that you would typically see on a Greek or Roman temple, the Parthian, for instance, that 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 sort of that sort of thing. And they had the swirling um floral sort of designs set within the stone. The um Meandros border, which is that very obvious Greek border. You can actually, if you look at the cover of Pandora, you can see that pattern as a border all the all the way around the cover. Um The point is that the Georgians were obsessed with that sort of element including collecting Greek vases and this is where we come to the cusp of the point basically. Mm -hmm. So there is a real character in the novel, his name is Sir William Hamilton and he was basically a British envoy in Naples um, under the jurisdiction of King Ferdinand and While he lived in Naples, which was for a very long time, over 30 years worth, he was collecting actively uh, Greek vases and pottery. Uh, He would also be involved in a lot of excavations, including at Pompeii. Uh, So we can already tell where this is going, although I need to backtrack again ever so slightly, so do forgive me here. But it is a common mistake to assume the mythical Pandora, was releasing all those evil worlds from a box. Um, you know, the, the myth itself is called Pandora's box, so we'd be forgiven in thinking that was what it was. However, when I was researching the actual myth itself, I did discover that Pandora's box was never a box at all, but it was a vase. Oh, fascinating. So it turns out that, yeah, I, I was completely fascinated by this, and I thought, oh, this is quite helpful, considering everything mm. I've just explained. Um, but it turns out box was a mistranslation, and that was courtesy of the 16th century philosopher Erasmus. He translated Hesiod's tale of Pandora into Latin, and the word pithos, which means a large storage jar of ours, it was translated into the Latin word, and forgive if I mispronounce this, um, but "pixis," and that word, you guessed it, it, it means box. So, that the, as such the term Pandora's box, it's endured ever since. But as I said, it was a vase, not a box, and so that is when I started to look a little bit more into how can I possibly get a Greek vase to Georgian London. And my research into William Hamilton is what gave me the answer. So, as I said, he'd been spending many years collecting these vases, so he had hundreds of them, basically, Um, with the invasion of Napoleon quite imminent in Naples, he decided for safety, and this is the irony of it, uh, to ship a lot of his collection to England. So he put them on the naval ship, the HMS Colossus, with the idea that he was going to return uh, with the um, shipment a few um, days, weeks later. But the problem is, is that ship, it actually sank tragically off the Scilly Isles and it was the contents of this ship. So all of his precious vases, they were never to be recovered in Hamilton's lifetime, according to historical sources. And that is basically where the whole thing really tipped off. I loved the Georgians. I knew I was going to be setting a novel in that era, but... Yeah, getting a Greek vase to London, that's essentially how it was done. And that's where my novel in terms of the prologue opens up. I love it. Wow. Well,
1: it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Uh, It adds so much. And it's like that's the linchpin uh, or the anchor that pulled it all together for you, I'm assuming.
0: It was, absolutely. So it was just, everything just fell very smoothly into place. So I, I'm calling Pandora basically my fluke novel, where all of the kind <laughs> of concepts that I wanted to include just slotted mm-hmm. so perfectly inside. Now, obviously this novel, as I said, it is not a retelling of the myth, but by bringing Pandora's vase over to the 18th century, I was able to tell the tale of Pandora herself through mm. the character of Dora Blake.
1: Absolutely. Now, you obviously have a great deal of knowledge about all of this, but one of the things about the book that I found just completely fascinating was that you were able to create the atmosphere of Georgian London. Like like it wasn't all happy jewelry and, and mm. fashions. It was a lot of um, – like. I, I just felt like I was there where the streets were dirty and people smelled and it was just, it was very authentic. <laughs> it felt authentic. And so what kind of research did you have to do to kind of pull that all together?
0: Well, there, there was research involved, but I think it's also a case of common sense as well. I, You're not the first person to tell me that this novel is quite a smelly novel. Uh, I didn't set out for it to be <laughs> a smelly novel at all. <laughs> but, I, but I think as a writer, you need to be very, very aware of the five senses. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in cases of period dramas, you can see and you can hear, but that's not, all there is to it. You know, as as a writer and a reader, you need to be considering how is a character feeling? How is a character reacting to the environment around them? So in terms of research, first of all, a lot of this came from another novel that I'd actually written um, a few years before. So when I was at Aberystwyth University, I learned about the Romantics. Who were very interested in the in the Greek myths themselves. So, if we, you know, consider Keats's poems and Byron's uh, poems, so Lord Byron's Prometheus and Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, that's where a lot of this came about. But during that time, I learned about a gentleman named William Hazlitt. So he was what you would consider a forerunner of uh, a journalist. He was a great essayist and rubbed shoulders with Byron, Keats, etc. And he had a rather inappropriate love affair with his landlady's daughter, Sarah Walker. Now, I won't bore you with the full details of that, but it was an idea I was very, very invested in. And if anybody's interested, there is a tab on my website. Uh, the novel is named Infelice, which I do hope to return to at some point. But the novel itself, it was based in Georgian London, it was in the 1820s. And in Hoburn, that was the setting. So that was not a very rich area to live. And it meant that I had to do an awful lot of research to kind of figure out what would the environment have been like. So this was, again, a very dirty sort of place, you're not in lady latimer who is one of my characters you're not in her very very rich area you're not in the the beautiful polished ballroom you were down essentially in the dirt so it was very a very kind of lower class area to be in and that's where my research came on so when i decided to eventually shelve the novel i didn't want to waste this research so a lot of that went into pandora i did though add certain elements so there are a few scenes that are set in a lay stall so a lay stall is basically a place where human waste is delivered and disposed of we have to remember that Georgian London had no sort of sewage system whatsoever. Right. So there were no toilets. There was there was no kind of plumbing to get rid of the human waste. So it often just went out into the streets. And we needed, we, <laughs> they needed to find a way to dispose <laughs> of this. So the people who did this were called night soil men, and they would collect the waste in a wheelbarrow and buckets and bring them down to the sleigh stall. And so one of my characters, they end up down there and that's not going to smell very nice, is it? So it was imperative no. <laughs> that I needed to at least address this because it's impossible to ignore it. And like I said, as a writer, I think you need to rely on those, on those five senses. There was no other way around it. If I'm going to describe the opulence of Lady Latimer's ballroom, I had to describe the squalor of the London streets. Yes, yeah, we do it beautifully, yep. too. And
1: that's one of the brilliant things about the book is that you it really f- felt authentic reading it. It really it didn't feel like somebody's just putting words down. And I think it takes a talent to really kind of convey that so well to the reader. We bring
0: it to life. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. I, I did try.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you succeeded. Well, you you touched a little bit on the uh, jewelry design. Um, but let's talk about Dora. Mm. She's she's really ahead of her time as a character in terms of her ambition and her knowledge and of wanting more from life. So, can you talk to us about developing Dora as a character and and what it was like in that time
0: period? Of course. I mean, I don't necessarily think she was ahead of her time in the sense of her being ambitious and wanting more from her life, because I think that's a state of mind that many women in the era would have, you know, wanted. It's just they didn't always have the means to pursue it. So her background is rather sad. As I said, she lost her parents very young. She is grown up in this rather squalid antique shop that used to be very, very beautiful at one point, but her uncle is allowed to fall to rack and ruin. And she's very aware that she cannot make it on her own unless she finds a way out herself. Usually women in her position, they were under the guardianship of a man in, or they have married And as soon as a woman married, they all any belongings that they had it it automatically went over to the husband. So this freedom that I have given Dora it it wasn't completely completely, um, it, it wasn't able to be grasped straight away. She had to work very hard and be quite manipulative in the way that she achieved it. The thing I will say about Dora. If we consider the myth of Pandora, Greek myths generally are quite misogynistic in nature. Women are either written as the victim or the villain. And in Pandora's case, her curiosity in terms of opening Pandora's box, it is considered a sin. Whereas Dora, I wanted her curiosity to be considered a strength She is very much the hero of her own story. She is determined to get out under the thumb of Hezekiah because she's only got two avenues open to her, really. She's either married off, which takes away her agency, or she has to go onto the streets and live a rather um, bawdy lifestyle, which is obviously not what she wants either. Her passion for jewellery making has come from her mother. Her mother was a very, very love, well, very lovely looking Greek lady who was fascinated by the Pandora myth. I don't want to do too many spoilers here, but that is where I know, that don't. Is as well. But she also used to like her own jewellery, And she was an artist in her own right. And these are talents that Dora herself has has inherited from her mother. So she's using these strengths as her way of of getting out, basically. The jewellery itself was wonderfully fascinating to research as well. So there's a very excellent book that if anybody's interested in Georgian jewellery, they absolutely have to get hold of it. So it's called very unimaginatively, Georgian jewellery. Uh, but it is basically a book that has some beautiful photographs, and I 100% do, did act like a magpie looking through them. It was just such a beautiful array of photographs. Um, but the actual book itself, it was by Olivia Collings and Ginny Reddington Dawes, and it described how jewellery was made, the, the way that These pieces of joy were created. And that's how I kind of gave Dora that full sort of background there. But as I've said, she is very much in charge of her own destiny. There are other characters in the novel who help her along the way. But at every Mm -hmm. single point, Dora is the one that makes the decision. She's the one that calls the shots. And so for women who didn't have a lot of agency in those days, I have not ignored The historical um, facts in terms of, you know, this was her life, she couldn't really do a lot about it. But I have definitely made her manipulative in the nicest sense of the word in order to achieve her goals. Oh, I love
1: that. Definitely yeah. comes across to it. I was very impressed. I love that you said she got to make her own decisions. So mm-hmm. that's it describes her very well. I want to talk about another character in the book that is mm-hmm. just just lovely and it's the magpie. Oh,
2: Hermes. Her- Hermes.
1: <laughs> Hermes. Hermes Hermes. <laughs> Hermes. Hermes. It's such a great addition to the story. And, the, and of course, it plays in a pretty important part. Hmm. But um, can you talk about creating and, and including and developing this lovely bird?
0: Yes. Well, as I said earlier, Dora and Hermes, they sort of popped into my head fully formed. I knew she was going to be a jewelry designer. And perhaps I'm a bit superstitious myself because – I have always signalled a magpie and done the little rhyme, one for sorrow, two for joy, etc. So I think that was a subconscious decision to have a magpie in there. I thought it was just a lovely idea. So at the beginning of the novel, you see the magpie returning from a little nightly excursion where he's collected little trinkets for Dora. So the element of a magpie just being attracted to shiny things, there's that very kind of... Obvious level of the character, but as you say, he does play an important role, and I needed him to be the vehicle in which the novel's plot kind of carries out, especially near the end. In terms of his name, though, it's quite symbolic in the sense of um, the the god Hermes in Greek mythology. He was a god of thieves. So, obviously, magpie stealing shiny things. Yes, yes yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but also, he was a messenger of the gods as well. And as a character in the novel, Hermes is definitely a messenger of some sort. It's very Let's hard see. to go into further detail then, really, because... Yeah, don't. <laughs> he was a lovely little uh, little character to write, and I do have a very soft spot for Hermes. yes.
2: Well, let's see. You talked about writing this novel in a really unique way. So first during the pandemic mm. and submitting unfinished portions for prizes. Um, yes. Uh, all of that's fascinating. Can you describe Pandora's path to publication for us a little bit?
0: It was a little bit of a whirlwind, I'm going to be honest. So <laughs> this is the novel that I told you about, the one with William Hazlitt. From conception, I mean, in during the... Creative Writing MA. I actually used that idea as a dissertation, so uh, it was an idea that I became very, very attached to, and wrote quite a few few things about in this dissertation as as part of uh, the final degree project. And after I graduated, unfortunately, I had to go get a job. Uh, I it was absolutely necessary that. Basically, I couldn't jump into the writing straight away. I had to make my own way in the world. But it was an idea that I basically sat on and collected notes about and spent many years doing that until I finally decided to actually start writing it. But the point is, from conception to the final draft in which I finally gave up with it or shelved it, just put it aside, took 10 years. Whereas Pandora, in comparison... Took ten months. It was completely unprecedented. I don't know where this came from. Like I said, it's my fluke novel. Absolutely, just everything fell into place so beautifully. Um, I had the idea for it. So, Doran uh, and Hermes popped into my head. As I said, when I was trying to think of a new novel idea, they I was actually in the car coming back from a work event when these ideas popped into my head, and it was about two weeks after the last novel was rejected by my now agent, actually. Ah. So that was good. But she invited me to submit to her again when I had another idea. And so a part of me was feeling very, very bruised and upset about the fact that I had had to relinquish this other novel, because as I said, 10 years, that's an awful lot of time to spend on one idea, probably an unhealthy amount of time, (laughs) to be honest. But (laughs) I was basically on the bandwagon again quite soon after that. The idea came very quickly. But because I was feeling quite raw raw about it, I decided to sit on the concept for six months to focus on my job, try and earn a bit more money. And I thought to myself, if this idea is still strong in my head six months later, I know there's something in it and I'm going to pursue it, and it was still there six months later, and that's when I started researching. I think I probably took a couple of maybe a month or two, maybe three I can't quite remember it had it is a while ago now um researching it, and then obviously the next seven to eight months writing it at the time of getting about twenty thousand words. I decided to submit, as, as you said, Meg, to some writing competitions. Um, I don't know what they're like in America, but here in the UK, there are quite a few opportunities for writers to do this, for writers unagented, unpublished, to submit um, either a full manuscript or a preview of their work. And I actually submitted to quite a few other places, aside from the Lucy Cavendish and the Bath Novel Award, but these are the two that actually responded. So... I submitted to Lucy Cavendish first. Uh, I waited a f- quite a few weeks for. Th- for any sort of response it was just a case of I'm going to submit see what happens but I'm just going to carry on writing and that is what I did. Oh, that and was my
2: question so you, you kept writing in the interim? I did
0: yes I did Um, and in the early spring which is I had about 53,000 words at that point Um, I received word that I've been long listed and I was so shocked but absolutely thrilled awesome. <laughs> that it gave me the incentive then to submit to the Bath Novel Award not even thinking that I would get anywhere with that but I thought oh why not Bit a good look let's see what happens and to my shock I found out a couple of months later that I've been long listed for that as well and wow. the interesting thing here is that with the first novel I'd submitted to about 40 45 agents and obviously every single one of them had rejected me so it was very bizarre to find that after the long listings for both the Lucy and, and the Bath Novel Award had been announced. Agents were actually approaching me. And that's, it, like I said, it was a completely bizarre
2: experience. Wow. It, that must be rewarding. So were, were some of them
0: agents that had turned you down initially? Uh, a couple of them were actually, yes. So it was, it was, it, it, was, really rewarding. Rewarding. it was rewarding and, I'm, but I did feel quite overwhelmed about it. The thing is the agent that I have now, I knew I wanted her, you know, how just sometimes you get a fee- a good feeling about a person yes. and you think, you know what, I'm just going to work really oh, well yes. with this person. And that doesn't, that's nothing against the other agents who offered um, me interest, but of course, yeah. I did, still know which agent I wanted she was not the one that actually reached out I think she was sitting back quietly and watching everything sort of (laughs) sort of transpire but uh, at the time I was ready to finally submit a first draft that is when I did submit to the agents that had asked for it but I submitted to a few others who hadn't including the agent that I have and basically within 48 hours I had people asking for the full manuscript because any listeners who are aspiring writers, you'll probably understand that you only submit the first three chapters or 50 pages and then only when they request the rest that you do, do you send the full manuscript. But yeah, within 48 hours, I had people asking for the full manuscript. I remember this was um, late July, early August. But by the end of August, I had five offers of representation, including from the agent that I wanted. I signed with the agent. I took a month to do some tweaks uh, as she requested, and then a month after that, I had my UK publishing deal, and it was just fantastic. It was so fast.
1: That's wonderful. What a great story.
0: Yeah, oh, it, it was. Com- after ten years of want, um, you know, I wanted to be an author. I think I think since I was fourteen years old, that was when I made that decision. And then 10 years, I suppose, of dreaming of it with this other novel. And yeah, to finally have that happen after such yeah. a long time of being rejected for the other one, it, it was, I think I just sat there in a daze most of the time. It was completely bizarre. The When I got the publishing deal, um, we had to sit on it a few months before we could even announce it. And even after that, and which the, at this point lockdown was in full force. Oh, oh my um, we still had to wait 18 months, really, for the actual novel to be published in 2022. So then, obviously, within a few days, it went, it hit number one. Uh, and I, just, I was just completely wow. overwhelmed by the whole thing. And because of lockdown, I hadn't had the opportunity to meet my publishers in person. I hadn't even met my agent in person, although we had plenty of Zoom meetings. Um I didn't manage to get a launch, unfortunately. Although the paperback for Pandora came out in the UK on the 5th of January and I am getting UK launch for that so I'm very very happy but yeah it was just a completely bizarre situation and I'm still a bit dazed about it now to be honest
1: I can totally understand. What a fantastic story, and almost a it's, it's it's what a lot of people would like their their journey to be. Um, but you also have a kind of a unique situation. Your, your debut yeah. last year was celebrated in the UK, and yeah. we're recording this just before your launch here in in the states. So yeah. it's basically another debut for you. How Isn't does it? how does that feel? What's that like?
0: It's. A pleasure to be able to see my novel reach readers all over the world it's already published well it's published in some other territories but for the UK and the US included it will be 15 territories in total so that's lovely and I hope more are to come but the US was one of the last territories to offer so I was so thrilled to get that US deal and I had had people message me from America saying is it coming out in the US and I was like I don't uh-huh. know I hope it is and now I can say it is so um, that that's what you want isn't it you want it to be successful in your own country but you want it to reach other readers as well and I have no expectations because I am aware, actually, that readership tastes do change from country to country. And while it's done wonderfully well here in the UK, I don't know if it's going to do wonderfully well in the US. Fingers crossed it does. And I hope your listeners will will buy and, and read and really, really enjoy it. I'm just happy that it has reached you guys across the pond, and that's all I yeah. can say. Really, yeah. we're really happy. Well, it's too. the kind
1: of book that I think our listeners, yeah, our listeners love, and um also, like, was reading. You've got some, so much great press, so many great blurbs, and so many, so much support over here. So I can't imagine it not doing terrific.
0: Oh, well, fingers crossed, but I'm right. trying to be very level headed about it. But now I hear you. I hope so. Yes. <laughs>
2: Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. What a fascinating and immensely enjoyable exploration of the Pandora myth. We just know our U.S. readers are going to love this book. And um, can you tell us
0: briefly what's up next for you? Sure. So I have just submitted the edits for a short story that's going to be part of the uh, haunting season Follow up, which is called The Winter Spirits, and that's going to be released here in the UK in October. Um, but I'm actually writing my second novel at the moment, as the first novel took 10 years and Pandora took 10 months. This has taken 22 months just to get an even halfway decent draft. So this has been a bit of a, a nightmare, I'll be honest. But while it is still evolving and changing, because of the edits that I'm having to do, it's hard to kind of tell you exactly what it's about. But what I can say is that it is set in 1780, so it's still the Georgian period, and it is going to be set where I live actually, so the Snowdonia National Park. So it's a rural Gothic novel that will draw on the Welsh myths and the occults and also take a look at the Hellfire clubs of the era. So it's A lot darker than Pandora, but I'm hoping will still appeal to readers of Pandora who enjoyed it.
2: Yes.
1: Oh, my God. I'm ready for that right now. (laughs) Yes, totally.
0: (laughs) Um, So tell us also where
2: can readers connect with you online? So anyone who's listening wants to follow you on social media or find your website. Let's let's tell them how.
0: Great. Well, I have a website. It's a mouthful. So www.susanstokeschapman.com. I am also on Twitter and Instagram under the same handle, which is S Stokes Chapman. And you can find the links for all of that on my website. I have a newsletter as well. So if you feel like getting some extra updates and the opportunity to win a few prizes, just please do take a look. Oh, that's brilliant. I love
1: it. Oh, you had us at prizes. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, it's been so fascinating. And we could talk to you. F- gosh, for days about this. There's so much more wow. to explore. And I, I know that people are going to want to pick this book up and devour it. So um, congratulations on all this success. And uh, we'll, we'll see you for the next one.
0: Fingers crossed. Thank you so, so much. It's been mm-hmm. an absolute pleasure talking to you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. <laughs>
1: And thank you to all the podcast listeners. We hope you have loved listening as much as we love the conversation. Be sure to check out our org shop to support indie bookstores and grab Susan's book at a discount in all of our Friends and Fiction guests' books from both the Wednesday show and the podcast. Tune in next Friday for another fascinating episode. Have a great week.